I'm Bill Smith, and I'm one of the members of the teaching team here. I'm also one of the members of the counseling team, and we're here on the fourth Sunday in Advent. Also, we might call the eve of the Mass to celebrate the birth of Christ, or what they call the Christ Mass, or the, now we call it Christmas. The past four weeks have been devoted to Isaiah 9-6 and the study of the titles given to the Messiah, Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Today we're going to look at yet another title, Emmanuel, which is stated in Matthew 1.23, which is also a quote from Isaiah 7. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. So Emmanuel means God with us. And what's really in a name, anyway? Well, this last two letters, L, we find in a lot of names. Emmanuel, Elohim. I know we pronounce Elimelech, but it would be at least my rabbi friend who has a name introduces himself as Eli Melech. Gabriel, Elijah, Israel, Michael, Ishmael, Ezekiel, Elizabeth, Elisha. I never thought about my own wife's name. I'd better treat her a little bit nicer when she got that word God in there. So Emmanuel, L at the end would mean God. So Emmanuel means with us, God. Jesus came so he could be with us. And today I want to talk about all the planning that he went into just to be with us. My family is very disciplined in sending a text message saying, we're coming over, whoever's coming over, we always get some announcement. But it doesn't come, you know, thousands of years beforehand. It comes moments before. That's all the planning that's, that's coming, which is still nice to know that there's some kind of plan to come and, and be with us. But I want to show you today that God did a lot more than, than think about this a few moments ahead of time. Okay. So before we go any further, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as your children to sit at your feet. We're completely and wholly dependent upon your spirit to reveal to us the truths that you have for us. So I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to hear and receive your word into our lives. And I pray especially for the speaker today, Lord, for his sins. His sins are many. So I step out of the way to be your servant. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hopefully we got the crying out of the way and we can move forward this sermon. So, there are good stories. I love a good story. Last night I watched The Quiet Man, for those who have ever seen that movie. If you haven't, I don't know what's wrong with you because it's a classic, right? It's a great little story to see this healing and redemption in the family. And so there are good stories, and there are great stories. And then, of course, there's the greatest story ever told, which is the one we're looking at this season. So a good story has a lot of different elements to it. It has intrigue. It has danger. It has oh, action and chase scenes and special effects, dream sequences, Betrayal, corruption, justice, sacrifice, love, compassion. They're usually stories within stories and redemption. I should ask Laura, said I capture most of the qualities of a good story because you're a master of story. That's it. <laughs> so, before we go any further, let's look at the cast of players. 
is in my uh, in my my own training, we were asked to look at everything that's going on in the story. So we have a lot of players in this particular story. We have Gabriel, an angel of the Lord, Caesar Augustus, Herod, Quirinius, Zechariah, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, Joseph. Uh, I tend on and fans. I don't know what that's supposed to say. Mary, a virgin of Israel, shepherds, Simeon and Magi, and others. And as we look at these players, I have a few questions because there's a bit of a mystery here to me in some of this story. For example, why does God rebuke Zechariah, but he does not rebuke Mary when they question this story? What's Herod so upset about, really? Was Jesus really born in the barn? Who were these wise men? Why were they there? And probably the biggest story is, why is everybody so afraid there's so much fear around this story when you think about it, right? So I'll attempt to answer some of these questions, and others I'll leave those up to you. I know you don't like to get homework from a sermon, but too bad you got some from me. So the first question really is, was Jesus the one who was prophesied in Isaiah 7.14? So we spent the last four weeks looking at, was he the one prophesied in Isaiah 9.6? So is he really the one who was prophesied? The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel. You know, there are lots and lots of prophecies pointing towards Jesus. Some say over 300, 350. Some statisticians years ago looked at just 48 prophecies, and they did the statistical science that they would do in terms of the probability of this happening and that happening. And what they came up with was the chances that one man would fulfill just 48 of the prophecies was 1 in 10 to the power of 157. Now, that's a pretty big number. For those who don't understand math like me, uh, I guess you could take the state of Texas and fill it with uh, quarters about three and four feet high, then throw a silver dollar in there and mix it all up, and then ask someone to find that on the first try. That's what that would be like, one person. So the question becomes... Does it really take faith to come to salvation through Jesus? Well, absolutely it does. But that faith is not a blind faith, as someone or some would want you to believe, but instead a, ba- a faith based on facts. How much faith? Actually, not a lot. It just takes some time to look at the facts and take into consideration the statistics and probability of the prophets concerning the Messiah. When someone tries to tell you Christianity is a religious faith based upon ignorant acceptance of certain precepts that have no basis in fact, they're sadly mistaken. Christianity only makes sense. It's a faith that not only can be emotional, which it is, at least for me, apparently, and it's also an intellectual faith. As the lead statistician, a professor concluded, and any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact, proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. So, the second question is, what's everybody afraid of? Well, didn't mean to go that far, okay? There's a lot of fear around what's happening in this story. Every time you come back to any passage in Scripture, you tend to see something new that you don't see in particular. And so there's a lot of fear surrounding this person. Is he really who they say he is? Well, I did some, I'm interested in archaeology, and I dug up the birth certificate of, of Jesus here. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But if there was one, (laughs) it would look something like this. The mother's name, Mary of Nazareth, gave birth to name of child. And there's a lot of names there. (laughs) 
His name is above all names. At the sound of it, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And then on the back side, it says the name of the Father. Well, no one knows his name. Only the Son knows his name. Otherwise, he's known as Father, God, Jehovah, Yahweh, I am. And the list goes on. Place of birth, Bethlehem, as predicted. Time of birth existed before time began, entered into time on the 15th day of the month of Tishri, or the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. When he comes again, some believe he'll return on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. So anybody's paying attention, uh, probably guess that December 25th was probably not his birthday, but that's okay. We'll celebrate his birthday anyway, because it's good to celebrate birthdays, isn't it? Or, you know, we just had Grant, was it December 22nd? It's his birthday, three days before Christmas. His brother Calvin is December 20th, so they grow up with these birthdays real close to Christmas. I can't imagine what that must be like every year, having a birthday and then... (laughs) What's that like, Kristen? So did you just just have a birthday recently? I think that I'd like to sing you a song. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Chris. Happy birthday to you. And you can thank your daughter for that embarrassment. <laughs> okay, so uh, a lot of fear going on around this story. So I want to start first with for no particular reason, this guy Isaiah. And so all this question here is, what's going on here with all this fear? And so with Zechariah, in the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. Once when, he, once, when he was serving as priest before God, and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now, at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was outside, and they were praying. And then, he was terrified. And fear overwhelmed him. I'm not sure exactly why Zachariah was startled and terrified and overwhelmed and gripped with fear. This would be a pretty much a common day occurrence, right? I'm sure he was caught off guard, and maybe the appearance of this being, this angel, threw him off. And the angel tells Zechariah great news about a child that will be born to he and Elizabeth. And so we see Zechariah making a big mistake in response to this announcement. He asked the angel, how will I know that this is so? This turns out to be a mistake to question this angel, whose name was Gabriel. Wouldn't Zechariah have known the story about Abraham and Sarah and how God caused them to conceive in their old age? Of course he would have known that. God has already done this before. So because he questions God about something, whether he could do that or not, when God has already shown that he can do that, he pays a penalty. And what was the penalty? He loses his voice, right? You know, sometimes when I'm praying to God, I I wonder if he has the ability to do certain things that I already know he can do. 
So he pays a penalty. And I guess the question is, when do we expect God to reveal himself to us? So he didn't believe, and he lost his voice. But then what happens when John is born, then Zechariah gets his voice back, and the first thing he does is he sings a song of praise. So with this story, there's even background music. And we'll see a couple different songs being sung around this story. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people, and he has redeemed them. He has become Emmanuel. God with us, salvation from our enemies, to show mercy, sworn oath, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. The first thing he did was to sing a song of praise because God is now going to be with us. We could also look at poor Joseph. Joseph becomes fearful. Let's look at his anxiety here. It's not so much related to the announcement of the arrival of Jesus. It's more related to the announcement that his fiancée is with child. Joseph's fear was really about what to do with the situation he was in. Being engaged to a woman who is now found to be pregnant with a child clearly not his own. Joseph's fear is related to God's law. We read that Joseph was afraid to take Mary as his wife. He was fearful. It says, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. See, dream sequence, right in the story. And said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So why would Joseph be afraid to take Mary as his wife? Well, the answer is back in Deuteronomy. So we're going to go back to Deuteronomy and look at a passage out of passage that Joseph would have been familiar with. He was faithful to the law. In Deuteronomy, it says, If a man takes a wife and after being with her, dislikes her and slanders her and gives her a bad name, saying, I married this woman, but when I approached her, I did not find proof of her purity. I'm changing some words here by design. Then the young woman's father and mother shall bring to the town elders at the gate proof that she was pure. Her father will say to the elders, I gave my daughter in marriage to this man, but he dislikes her. Now he has slandered her and said, I did not find your daughter to be pure. But here is proof of my daughter's purity. Then her parents shall show the proof before the elders of the town, and the elders shall take the man and punish him. They shall fine him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the young woman's father, because this man has given an Israelite virgin a bad name. So he has this this problem he's facing. He's in the proverbial between a rock and a hard place. You see, if he reveals Mary as being pregnant before marriage. You know what the law says they do next to her? Stone her to death. But if the man accuses her and she's found to be pure, he just gets fined. I think there's a sort of a lopsided application there, but anyway. Joseph has a lot to think about. And being a righteous man or a man devoted to the law, he doesn't want to expose her to public disgrace. It's a good heart. I find it interesting that 
some translations said, instead of calling a righteous man, call him a man faithful to the law. You know, he was called a tecton, which gets translated as carpenter, but that same word also can be translated as scholar. So some believe that Joseph was actually a biblical scholar, not a carpenter. I'll leave it up to you to research that. <clears throat> so, after he considered this, this angel appears to him and reassures him not to be afraid, because this is of the Lord, a virgin of Israel. She is still a virgin, he's claimed. You see, we can make our plans, and we can even create some anxiety around our plans, hoping that our planning will turn out right. We can even ask God to bless our plans. But I would just encourage us all to remember that God has the final word. So make your plans, and then remember, Emmanuel has the final word. And that word became flesh, and still dwells among us. And if you've accepted him, and he dwells within you, Emmanuel, God with us, not near us, not around us, within us. And how about Mary? Mary gets a little concerned. She gets perplexed. And, and it says in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel, angel Gabriel to Nazareth to a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Now there's a whole sermon right there why Joseph and David are both mentioned. And the virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to, went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled, perplexed, concerned at these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. So why was she so troubled, perplexed by this? I mean, if someone were to come up to you and say, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you, would you become disconcerted and perplexed and greatly troubled? Well, it depends on who was giving this greeting and where you were when the greeting happened. For example, if you were in downtown New York City and a stranger came up to you and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you, well, you might simply roll your eyes and think, Welcome to New York. <laughs> if you were in Mary's situation, however, this would be confusing and a perplexing greeting. This is where it's helpful to remember that Christianity is Jewish, so in the mind of a Jew, to understand Mary's confusion is important because she was a virgin. She's confused by this message. And I have to say that women really get put upon in society. For a young Jewish girl, she had better be a virgin. And yet being a virgin also meant she was cursed because she didn't have any children. So first she had to get married, so she's no longer a virgin. And as we just read in Deuteronomy 22, she better be able to produce evidence of virginity or there's big problems ahead. Then once married, if she can't produce children, she's still cursed. Of course, we know that sometimes the problem is of conception lies with the man, not the woman. But back then they were quick to blame women for everything, starting with Adam. Good thing we stopped doing that, man. <laughs> so how do we know a virgin felt cursed or shamed by her virginity? Well, we're going to go back again, the Old Testament, and we're going to look at Jephthah's daughter, sort of an obscure figure. In Judges 11, we read that Jephthah had made a deal. He was uh, the, the, one of the judges, and he made a deal with God to sacrifice the first thing that came out of his house if God will just give him victory in battle. And God gives him victory in battle. And Jephthah returns only to be greeted by his daughter coming out of the house. And Jephthah is quite upset. And he tells her indirectly that he has to keep the vow he made to the Lord. And she is part of that vow. 
Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I think Jephthah's daughter is going to play a key role in preparing Mary for her role. But first, we have to go back even further to another woman named Miriam. And Miriam, it was one of the prophets, a sister of Aaron and a prophet in the time of Moses. And we read about her in Exodus 15. Sorry, one slide too early. And what happens in that story is when, when there's victory and they come back from the victory, Miriam greets them dancing with timbrels and greets them that way. And so when Jephthah returns home, now we go 100, 130 years forward, he returns home, who should come out to greet him but his daughter dancing to the sound of timbrels like Miriam had done. She was simply following traditions established by Miriam. She must have listened to the stories of Moses. And I'm guessing, and ladies, you'd have to confirm this for me, but I'm guessing that as a little girl, she must have tuned into the parts about Miriam. I guess she would have been thinking, okay, the men do those things, so what do the women do? So Jephthah's daughter, upon hearing her father had freed Israel like Moses did, she naturally did what Miriam did. And she also learned something else from Miriam. She learned what not to do. And we read in Numbers 12, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. I don't know what's wrong with those people, but they had a problem with it. The Lord heard this. The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. And when the cloud lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became white as snow. So just to be clear, Jephthah's daughter also learned not to question the Lord. And she learned it from her ancient sister Miriam. So this gives us another insight into her response to her father's announcement. She doesn't even need to know what the vow was. What does she say? She says to him, do to me as you have promised the Lord. That's all she says. She just asks for some time to prepare for whatever her father is going to do to her. The women of Israel respond to her example. And from this comes the tradition, the Israelite tradition, that each year young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Mary would have probably also participated in that commemoration. So now we fast forward 1,100 years or so and look in on this young woman, Mary, a young woman of Israel, a virgin of Israel. So it would be fair to assume she would have participated. She would, not have, she would have listened to the story and learned how best to respond to the Lord, even when you're not sure exactly what's going to happen. Of course, she would have supported this with the same thing that Jephthah's daughter did, because she says, I'm a handmaiden of the Lord. She says the same exact thing that Jephthah's daughter said. I think we can all take a lesson from what Mary does and what Jephthah's daughter did. God planned everything out over 1,200 years at least so that he could Emmanuel, so that he could be with us. He didn't send a text message a few minutes beforehand. He planned it all out. And he used the hasty decision of Miriam to later teach Jephthah's daughter how to respond in faith so he could prepare Mary how to respond to him correctly. And then Mary sings a song of trust. You see, everything that is happening in your life, everything that has ever happened, everything that will ever happen to include the hasty, self-centered decisions, God will turn to good. 
So do you sometimes feel alone? Emmanuel. Do you sometimes worry about things? Remember Emmanuel. Do you regret some things? Remember Emmanuel. You can worry if you want to, but you don't really need to. God can pull things together over a 1,200-year span of time. Caring for our situation, quite simple for him. Because we know in Romans that it says God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God. So there was a lot of fear going on around a lot of different situations. The neighbors were afraid when Zechariah came out. King Herod was afraid, and because he was afraid, everyone in the region was afraid. Why was King Herod so afraid? He's the king. It says in Matthew 2, In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising, and have come to pay him homage. And when King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. So why is Herod so afraid? These wise men, or king makers, showed up. I believe these wise men were descendants of the disciples of Daniel. They were not Jews, nor were they kings. I don't believe they were. We don't know how many there were, but tradition says there were three. Why three? Because there were three presents or gifts. But I have a problem with that. I think there were hundreds, hundreds of them, and here's why. First off, do you think that three guys loaded down with very valuable goods would have made it across that geography without getting robbed? They didn't travel like that. See, Carolyn supported me, right? They traveled with support. They had a whole crew of SWAT team members out there to protect them. And if you were one of the Magi or magicians, where we get the word from, who've been studying what Daniel taught about the greatest king of all being born, would you say, have a nice trip, or would you be like, I want to go too? You would want to go. They would all have wanted to go. I think everyone who could afford it, who was in Babylon, went to make that trip. So we go back to Daniel, and we read about a king of Babylon named Nebuchadnezzar who was having bad dreams and summoned his magicians to interpret the dreams. However, the king decided in this one dream not to tell them the dream, but rather for them to tell both the dream and interpret the dream. Kind of a hard task to do. Maybe have a boss like that who sets up our way too high and can't be done. John Dunn's like, yep, I got that guy. His magicians couldn't perform the request, so the king orders all the magicians to be put to death, which would have also included Daniel. So when Daniel found out, he put in a request to delay the execution to have time to pray, and the Lord reveals to Daniel the king's dream and the interpretation, and Daniel tells them to the king. And he saves not only his life, but he saves the life of all the magicians, all the magi. And as a result, he was put in charge of all the magi. And for them, he would have been sort of like a savior, right? He saved their lives. And so whatever he said, they would do because he saved them. But there's something else Daniel knew. He knew the time of the birth of the Messiah. This timing was revealed to Daniel by an angel Gabriel. And so Daniel, being the chief of all the magicians, Magi, would have been in a position to teach them about his God, and I think he would have wanted to teach about his God, just like we do. Part of his teachings would have likely also included about the birth of the Messiah. 
So depending on which scholar you believe, Daniel passed on his knowledge of the timing of the birth of Messiah anywhere from two to 500 years before the birth. So when God decided to be with us, Emmanuel, he planned this birth to the finest details, finest details hundreds of years ahead of time. Every time God shows even a part of himself, people respond with fear. That's why when they showed up, there was lots of fear. And so in order to, do, to make that not such a, a terrible thing, he shows up as a baby. I mean, come on, who's afraid of a little baby? Well, Herod was. Herod was so afraid of this baby that he had thousands of baby boys, two years or younger, murdered. That's how fearful he was of a baby. So the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And yet, look at how God responds to our fear of him. He tells us, do not be afraid. To Zechariah, he says, do not be afraid. To Mary, he says, do not be afraid. To Joseph, he says, do not be afraid. To the shepherds, he says, do not be afraid. Let's not forget the shepherds. The shepherds were terrified. It says that in that region in Luke 2, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Shepherds as a social class of people fell somewhere near the bottom of the ladder. I can imagine the job interview. Well, young man, we're looking for someone who's slightly smarter than the dumbest animals on earth. So how did you know about this job? Well, I read the sign. You, you can read. Okay, you're hired to be a shepherd. But remember this. The sheep are very important. They're very valuable. And I think it's quite interesting and, and even insightful that God provides the most spectacular announcement of the arrival of his son to these lowly shepherds. See, an angel tells Zechariah and Mary and Joseph. Herod is informed secondhand by wise men. And notice God does not tell Herod to not be afraid. If anything, he would probably tell him, be afraid. Be very, very afraid. The Pharisees and Sadducees don't even get copied on the email. And you think about it. Now, why didn't God inform them? Because he already had. He already explained it all in his word. But they missed it. But the shepherds, the shepherds, the lowliest people, they get a show that even Steven Spielberg couldn't produce. God turns everything upside down. And the shepherds don't sing a song. Zechariah sang a song. Mary sang a song. The shepherds didn't sing a song. The angels sang to the shepherds. They sang a song of peace. God turns everything upside down for the shepherds. Quite the amazing experience for the lowest of all humanity. Frederick Buchner gives us some idea of what the shepherds might have experienced from the point of view of one of the shepherds. And it goes something like this. This is the shepherd speaking. And he says, night was coming on, and it was cold, and I was terribly hungry, and I had finished all the bread that I had brought in my sack, but my gut still ached for more. And that's when I noticed my friend, a shepherd like me, about to throw away a crust he didn't want. 
So I said, throw it to me, friend. And he did throw it to me, but it landed in between us in the mud where the sheep had mucked it all up. But I was so hungry, I picked it up and I stuffed it in my mouth, bread, mud, and everything. And as I was eating, it was as though I suddenly saw myself. It was though I wasn't just a man eating bread, but a man watching a man eat bread. And this is what I thought. So this is who I've become, a man who eats muddy bread. But as I continued to eat, I thought, this bread still tastes good. But as I continued on, I thought, the mud tastes good too. So I opened my muddy man's mouth and I shouted to my friends, the bread is good, the mud is good. They must have thought that I was out of my mind or a terrible fool. But they saw what I meant because we saw everything that night. Everything. How can I make you understand? I wonder, have you ever done this or have this happen to you where you worked all day long and you were dog tired, bone tired, so you decide to take a break and you sit up underneath a tree or up against a rock and you just stand there with your eyes open looking at something and they're just glazed over. And you sit there for what might be 30 minutes or a thousand years. And the whole time you're looking ahead and you don't see a thing. Nothing. Then as you come to, and your eyes begin to come to, you realize that you've been staring at something the whole time. You just didn't see it until now. Maybe a ewe lamb with its foot caught underneath a rock or the moon scorching a hole through the sky. It was there all the time. You just didn't see it until now. That's how it was this night anyway. It was like finally coming to, not things coming out of nowhere that had never been there, but things coming into focus that had been there always. Oh, and such things, the air wasn't emptiness anymore. It was alive. Brightness everywhere, dipping and wheeling like a flock of birds, and what you always thought was silence stopped being silent and turned into the beating of wings, thousands and thousands of them. And, but not just wings, as you came to more, there were voices, high and wild like trumpets. The words I could never remember later. But it was something like I'd yelled at my friends with my mouth full of muddy bread. By God, it's good, brothers. The crust, the mud, everything. Everything was good. Well, if you thought we were out of our minds, you'd be right, of course. But you know, it was like being out of jail. I can still see us, the squint-eyed little one who always complained of sore feet, and a salt-off little guy who could outswear a Roman, and the young one who would blush like a little girl. We tore off across that field like drunks at a fair, and drunk we were, a crazy drunk, splashing through a sea of wings and moonlight and the silvery wool of sheep. Was it? Was it night? Was it day? Did our feet even touch the ground? Shh, you wake up our guests, said one of the women who were helping her. We met her coming in the other direction, her arms loaded with claws and so on. When we got to the room, one of the people who were there held his finger to his lips. You know, with the eye of a storm, there's no wind. Nothing moves, nothing breathes. Even silence keeps silent. So hush now. 
hush. Do you see him? Do you see him? By God Almighty, brothers and sisters, open your eyes and listen. And the angel sing a song of peace. There was one person who was not frightened at the arrival of Jesus. It tells us in Luke 2, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It has been revealed to him. It had been revealed by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Simeon sings a song, and he sings a song of hope. The songwriter Michael Card said, now is the time for us to take this baby into our arms. For there is nothing to fear, nothing to be afraid of. For when you do, your life will never come to an end. For Jesus is the only way that you'll find peace. He'll give you salvation, for he's the light of the Gentiles. So the background of this story includes songs of faith and hope and trust so that we can be at peace. So I want to end with reminding you of one thing that Jesus says in Matthew 28. He says, remember, I myself will be with you every day until the end of this present age. For he is Emmanuel, God with us and God in us and God through us. Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, the strength and truth of your word, the power of your Holy Spirit, confirm in us and to us that you are Emmanuel. You are still with us here now, within us abiding. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.